which is how complicated tax is. If you pull one lever, hole drops in the floor on the other side of the room that you're not expecting. And welcome to Radio Brews News, episode 425, recorded on Thursday, the 29th of June, 2023. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News, and I'm joined this week by Ian Watson. So it's one in, one out. Is uh, Sabrina's on a leave day, and uh, you've just returned from uh, a trip to Tasmania, Ian. I have indeed, Matt. Yes, it's uh, had a fantastic time down there. My first trip to Tasmania, I was very excited about it, and... Um, um, yeah, it lived up to it lived up to the hype. Loved it. A winter trip as well, so it's a, it, it adds a special something when you're down there in winter and get you you get a proper winter, uh, unlike you know a, a Brisbane winter or a more northern northerly one. Yeah, well, it's funny. Everyone was telling me how much I was going to freeze down there and and uh, at me for you know not taking thermals down and so forth. <laughs> and um, I think people forget where I grew up. Uh, in Toowoomba, which <laughs> oh, um, Toowoomba. That's, that's yeah, true. it it, uh, it has some pretty cold winter days, uh, and yeah, the, I, I think the, the the weather really turned it on for us while we we're down there. Yes, it was cold, but it was nothing that I hadn't experienced as a kid every you know every second winter morning. And um, there was though a couple of really cold uh, spots when the when the wind got up and a a little bit of rain come on, and I was like, "Yep, that's right. I'm not in Queensland anymore." But uh, no. Uh, Fantastic weather and fantastic time. Getting around, checking out the the Hobart food and drink scene, seeing some dark mofo stuff, and checking out Mona and all the tourist things you can you can imagine. I was down there in April and got to Mona for the first time and was incredibly impressed. Um, you know, just with what they've created, apart from the art, just the facility to tour. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, I was saying. Um, uh, on the ferry on the way back to to Rocky and to some other friends uh, that we went out there with that day, it's like you know I've been to the Reich Museum and seen the paintings by the Dutch masters, you know that I studied in school, and uh, was thought I was blown out of that, but it was nothing in comparison to, to Mona, where the Reich Museum and seeing these Dutch masters, they were just beautiful paintings on a wall, and while there was no paintings by the masters in Mona, the entire thing was like the exhibit, it, it, the whole layout. Uh, just incomparable to any other museum I've ever been to. The building is an artwork. As much as they they try and say that it's not, just that sandstone and the textures and everything. But then also, you know, it's a beer podcast, so we'll, I, I love the way that beer is integrated. Like beer is just there because it's you know owned and operated by the person who started Mubru. Um, and Marilla Estate, and it's just lovely to be able to have beer that's just given a very simple respect um, in in that amazing facility. I was uh, my only disappointment there was actually around beer, and that was the fact that the um, uh, that strange beer potluck machine um, wasn't working because <laughs> yeah. you know, I'd heard about oh, it really? and then saw it there and was really wanted to to, to do it just to say uh, I'd done it but it was it was out of order unfortunately at that time so my only <laughs> disappointment with it was around beer so for those who haven't been it's a it's like a dispensing machine but you don't get to choose what you want you just pay your money 
and it dispenses whatever it wants to. And I think there's a can of Fosters in there, like a, a, a random, it's kind of like Russian roulette. You could get anything, including a can of Fosters. Yeah, that's right. All the rest are, are, are various Moobrew beers, but there was that one can of something else in there as well. Lovely. And uh, man, I also saw that you were, and if anyone's guessing, there's not a lot of news around this week, so, <laughs> so don't expect that you're going to hear the uh, breaking news uh, klaxon. Um, but you also sent me a photo of uh, yourself enjoying a beer at uh, the, the, the beautiful Cascade Brewery, which I think is one of the most scenic uh, breweries in the country, if not the most. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. So I had that on my, my list that I did want to go and check it out. And uh, Rocky was teasing me a, a little bit at one stage about it. You know, like, do you really want to go there? And it's like, yeah, I really want to go there. And it's like, you know, I think she was a bit surprised that a larger uh, brewery I wanted to go and go and see. And I went, look, I've been, a, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. Um, I'm, I'm here in the in the hometown of the eldest brewery in the country. I, I should go and should go and check it out. So we only got there at like 20 to 5 one afternoon and, uh, and she was like, wow, okay, yeah, you're right. I can see why you want to come here. And it's like, well, I didn't know I was going to look like this. Um, well, you know, I knew the, 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 pit, the image, but I didn't know it would look quite as beautiful as it didn't. You know, just absolutely spectacular. Hobart really turned it on at that moment. You know, the, the, the fog was rolling in. It was late afternoon. Uh, it was really cold uh, at, the, at the time. So we went to the bar across the road and got a beer each and, Went and stood outside, freezing to get the the uh, uh, the necessary photographs. Then went back into the, enjoyed the warmth and and looked at that incredible building um, and how it was lit up at that moment. Just a- a- absolutely awesome. If you are a beer person, which is why you're probably listening to this podcast, and you happen to be in Hobart, I recommend going and checking out and doing it later in the afternoon. And it looks, you know, absolutely incredible. And, and for me, um, you know, the, the the Cascade story, which, you know, I followed very closely, um, because again, if you go back almost 20 years, it'd probably be 18 years ago, Cascade was the brewery that, that CUB tried to leverage into the craft space, um, you know, with the first harvest, I think. And it, 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 I think it's still one of the very, very early fresh hop beers done commercially um you know in, in in the in in the world i haven't found very many records it's something that everyone does now but when they did the first hop um harvest beer um it was very very new um but then also that was part of their four seasons range where they were trying to make a, a, a beer for spring a beer for summer and a beer for autumn and then um you know they also had a, a beer for winter i'm trying to think i think the harvest must have been the spring no, no. Um, first harvest was its own thing. Um, aside from those, and then you had um, uh, winter warmer, which was a, a dark wheat beer. There was um, spring, which was which was a, a wheat beerish sort of thing for yeah, me. It was a light wheat beer. Autumn amber, um, and then there was something in summer as well. And first harvest was separate okay. to, to those. But as it was well. all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, 20 years or so back, uh, yeah, it was quite quite ahead for a larger brewery to be doing that uh, in that period of time. Also, Bogues at that time were also doing uh, a little bit in the way of seasonal stuff, and they had like the Bogues Honey Porter uh, used to come out um, once a year. Um, there was, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it now, there was another one that came out which they eventually turned into being Bogues um, Wizard Smiths, but it did have another yes, name yep. at first, and that was a um, 
uh, uh, an ale and trying to come across very much as an ale at a time when the larger breweries were all really were just you know still in the lager space so it was was whilst it wouldn't set um any people's imagination alight now back then that was the signs of a larger brewery really trying to do something and both of those were were, were doing something which was was interesting whereas the mainland ones were really just leaving it all dead in the water and and again i think it's relevant because when you look at the way that the craft beer movement has played out and it's something i've talked a, a, a little bit about recently there was something that beer lovers thought that craft beer was going to supplant or change or you know modify you know and craft beer in those days was the pale ales the ipa is not some of the the, the newer um iterations of styles but beer drinkers were going to rediscover more flavorsome beers on mass and i don't think that that's really played out and so watching the way that the big brewers who, who who need much bigger niches to play in or much bigger markets to play in um, outside of the niche to really succeed, um, you know, they copped a lot of criticism from people such as myself that they that they didn't go more to champion more esoteric, more flavour forward beers, but the beers that they were making, they still couldn't find. A strong market for you know lager has never really been supplanted. Yeah, I, I, I think like there there was um it was probably just a little bit early for him to be doing it, and maybe it was uh, maybe there was a few mistakes in where they put it on. Um, that I, I think it's time some of the at the time some of the venues that were offered it to probably weren't the ones that were going to get them that that full purchase with it, but they would have just been using what information they had at that time. Um, and it was was quite early days, you know, considering there was uh, uh, six-tenths of bugger all breweries in the country at that stage. I think back and then, you know, you might have had 25, 30 breweries in Victoria and 25, 30 in WA, and they were the leading lights, um, both of those two states and how many breweries they had. Um, and certainly Queensland and New South Wales were a long way uh, behind that, so it was a it was a totally different time. Perhaps if they did something now, um, they might be able to find a little bit more traction, and particularly picking the um, the, the the correct venues for it. But um, it was still very admirable what they were trying to do at that point in time. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. They, they made a lot of mistakes, which is what I focused on. Um, where when I wrote the, the the way that they, I don't think they fully embraced the market and wanted to control. The way that they always had with some of their lagers, but I also think that you know, and I, I was just trying to look um, for an article that James Atkinson did. It would have been 2016 or 2017, where the then head of craft for CUB basically said IPAs aren't a thing, um, and you know, got excoriated for saying it because everyone thought IPA was going to go the way that it did in the US, and it just never has in Australia because it's a very different market. Um, but then also I don't, you know, you, you look at how many craft breweries are embracing much lighter um, styles to get the broader market um, that the big brewers have commanded because they've realized that they're never going to grow their volume with some of their more um, flavor forward beers. And to, to me, that's a little bit of a recognition that maybe some of the insights that came out of the big brewers early on 
were actually correct. Yeah, maybe, maybe, or maybe there's a midway point uh, uh, there to what it really could be, because um, there could be some reluctance in some ways on the on behalf of the big guys. But yeah, I'd, like IPA is never going to be um, replace what the mainstream light lager has been for a long time. It, it is just too. Um, uh, too flavour forward in that way. It's probably still got some some way to go, and that's fine. And the, and I don't. For for me personally, what I would like to see is just a diversity of flavour um, available. And you know, good flavour doesn't have to be in big or bold forms. Too, um, there are many many um, wonderful beer styles that are a lot more subtle um, in their flavour profile that, that that really could grab some people's imagination and to be honest if 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 um that doesn't happen but we still just have good beer available and more freely available we don't have to have it as the dominant the dominant thing if that makes sense yeah yeah no no it does but uh, but again like that's also where i see that in terms of the beers don't have to be as dominant, the, the, the flavour dominant, you know, a, a lot of the Belgian beers and a lot of the classic uh, German styles that speaking to beer importers are starting to find a market again. People are starting to move back to them. Um, yeah, and Ian's doing that sort of a um, fist pump um, of excitement uh, because, and, and it is great that we are seeing those, but... They were always flavoursome beers um, without actually being as extreme as some of the craft uh, segment wanted to push beer flavour. The other Look, another thing too, when you're talking that extremity there, Matt, and this is something that you've touched on in the, some stage in the last couple of weeks uh, while I was away, I think it was a link that I sent you, was about when we talk about aggression to it, sometimes we it's not just the flavour profile of the product but it's how we present that product can make people's perceptions of it and have a reaction there. And sometimes people don't want aggression. Um, so if we're presenting something in an aggressive way with aggressive packaging, um, aggressive imagery, um, that can put people on a defensive foot straight as it is and maybe um, start to turn their mind as to what the flavour of this is or or whether it's for them. And you could have the exact same IPA that's however bitter or, or bold in whichever way it's bold um, and presented in two different ways, uh, either in the way you're serving it or in the way you're packaging it. And you can get different reactions from um, from people with, with that. Some people might be less excited because of, uh, you know, you're presenting it a little bit more subtly and some people might get more excited because they might be attached more conservative in their nature or they just don't like or, or they just find unappealing um, an aggressive um, an aggressive packaging and, and imagery that you, you show alongside. So that could be something, you know, over particularly the last like 12, 13 years, things have gotten quite um, uh, out there in how we present some of these products. And it could be seen by some as being a little, a little touch more juvenile, which is, I think, what the the point of that article that that you put up on the um, the Facebook group um, was trying to put across. Mm. So uh, now I, I think we'll have, probably have a little bit more discussion about some of these things, um, but there was a little bit of news in the form of announcements, so we might just get to that up front. Um, 
because it is of importance to the industry. Peer nominations open for the uh, Indie Beer Awards. So each year at the Indies, industry peers can nominate uh, people that they think are worthy of uh, recognition for service to the industry, Young Gun of the Year, and True Indie Supporter. Um, you can there's a link on the, the, the Facebook page and uh, in the show notes um, that you can if there's someone who you think is truly deserving of you know the, the service that they've made to the industry someone who's young and achieving great things in the brewing industry or the uh, true indie supporter which is uh, awarded to a retailer publican or bar operator that strongly supports indie beer via advocacy or market and promotion um, you can jump through and the indies are going to be held on 23rd August um, at the BrewCon on the Gold Coast and you can book your tickets to the uh, Indies Award and also get uh, tickets to BrewCon following the link. Yeah, just put forward anyone that you really think the industry should be recognising and they'll, they'll only get recognised if someone nominates them and that could be you. Absolutely. And it's uh, the, the person who you think, gee, you know, they really deserve more credit for what they do. So if that prompted you, get voting. Um, the other nice little one is uh, the Australian International Beer Awards itself won an award. Um, Australia's largest beer awards, the Australian International Beer Awards, has itself won an award, being named the Corporate Event of the Year at the National Meetings and Events Australia Awards. Um, they've got awards for everything. Wow! <laughs> so, so it's nice to, uh, but it is it, it 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 is nice to see because I think the um, you know again. Everyone knows that I was MC, um, and uh, the, 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 this year so I was involved. Um, but having watched the way that the AIBAs have come on um, over the nearly 20 years that I've been going, um, to really evolve into a celebration not only of beer excellence in the categories, but the night itself is a really special um, a, a event that elevates beer, all of the things I love to talk about. Um, it was really nice to see that they won, that they were recognised uh, for the work that they've done on the awards themselves. You know, I must say that the ARBA, the presentation night, is a pretty spectacular thing when you look at um, pulling off something like that. How many people do they have in the room uh, once? 980, I think, nearly 1,000. Yeah, that's and to be able to serve... The quality of food uh, to that many people in that short of a time frame, um, keep everyone on track, keep the whole night on track. It, it, it is a very well, very, very well-run event. Hmm. And all, but again, also the way that it showcases the industry in a really elegant way. Like, again, without making it pretentious, you know, you, um, or anything like that, it, it really does... You know, I think when you walk into an awards and you see the industry taking itself seriously... That is a very helpful way to encourage people to project the industry seriously externally as well. Oh, absolutely. Now, God, I, I, I do wonder if, you know, one of the collaboration beers that they had that was nicely packaged this year, um, given that, you know, not only could that beer win an award, but the awards win an award and you wanted to get that on. Uh, can you think of someone that you would call to uh, to get your collaboration beer packaged? I, I, th I think I can, Matt. Um, I think it's something that we're all familiar with here, but, you know, it doesn't hurt to, to remind ourselves of who we can turn for if, if we're looking for some some packaging, you know, or, you know, if you've got current stock of 
cartons or cans that you know would be made redundant with the new pregnancy logo rules that come into place at the end of July, well, perhaps you should contact the team at Rallings on 1300 852 235. They can find a cost-effective way for you to use them up by either supplying a blockout sleeve or a full wrap self-adhesive label. This will help up use up any old can stock and may save you thousands of dollars in reprint costs and also buy you time to have your printed cans updated. Contact the team at Rallings for a chat to see how they may be able to help you on 1-300-852-235 or sales at rallingsprint.com.au. Nicely done. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure if the Rallings team are helping you to sort of, uh, you know, cover your old ones, you, it's not going to look terrible on the shelf. Um, as I said, very quiet news week this week. Um, always a worry um, about what's going to come down the pipeline. But there are a couple of things that uh, leapt out at me um, this week, Ian. Um, and... You know, as somebody who works in the media, you're always very aware um, of the media and what's going on in the media. And when you see things coming up, you start to wonder why. And uh, James Watt, we haven't talked about Brewdog on on, on the um, podcast for quite a while. Once upon a time, it was a fairly popular thing, but their antics are their antics. But it's been interesting to see James Watt has been taking to social media, you know, taking, and he's done a big thing with uh, Bloomberg um, about the business. And to me, that's a very interesting thing because it was, you know, he's been a little bit media shy talking about things. But uh, one of the things that he was talking about was the IPO because um, we haven't seen too much about, I think it was 2017, they took uh, 225 million pounds from uh, TSG, which is an equity, private equity fund. Um, and that's been t- ticking away at 18% compounding interest. Um, yeah, for, for six years now. Um, and that's generally a little bit beyond their um, uh, window of horizon. And this is the first time I've actually seen discussion about that because it's the Bloomberg article says, what sees London as his preferred destination for an IPO? Buyout firm TSG has extended the term of its investment until August 2024. So that means it's already past their investment window. Um, and if the IPO market hasn't improved by then, what says he plans to refinance the TSG stake with another private equity house? Selling to a big brewer is not part of the plans. <laughs> and again, who's buying? Uh, and what declined to rule it out completely? Um, everyone's got a price, he says. I don't know. There's a lot in there that just sort of sounds a little bit desperate. When I did a, I did a very quick calculation uh, of looking at what six years of compound interest would be on a two hundred million pound loan at eighteen percent, and I think the payout figure was four hundred twenty five million. So that's a lot of appreciation that, and and it's preferred payout as well from from what I've seen. So the private equity people get paid out first in an IPO or a sale, and then all of the many hundred, you know, tens and tens of thousands of crowd of equity punks um, get paid out later um, if there's anything left. So I I, I think it's fascinating. I, I, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, there's certainly a big hole to try to dig themselves out of there. It's not a position that I would um, 
I would envy that I would want to be in, um, particularly in the current market, that it's sort of all coming to um, it's coming to a head in. Um, yeah, let's let's uh, watch this one and see what's going to happen on there. Like finding someone else, another um, uh, equity group to refinance that through would be difficult. Um, I think because it just would not seem that the the you could get the value terms for it. Um, it, it it could it could be something that could turn quite dire, really, um, uh, as far as um, the result of it, um, if they cannot find additional finance for that, and um, if the current uh, equity partners really do just it's time for them, they want their money, they need their money. Um, what happens then? And I mean, you make a good point. Like uh, private equity goes in hoping to get a significant return. You know, they they go in at early stage um, or um, go into businesses that they think that they can turn around to make a um, you know substantial uh, return on. I I think that the craft beer industry is well past that point. You know, we saw the Constellations investment um, in in the US, a billion dollars, you know, which was marked down. Um, I just don't see there is the appetite um, as craft breweries expand um, and they've, they all seem to have hit a glass ceiling in terms of how big they can, they can go. Um, and unless you're solving a problem, I don't know where the value is going to come from. Actually, I'll read another quote that was... Um, Brewing beer is a very big person's game, says Nigel Parson, a consumer analyst at brokerage FinCap Group PLC. You can do very well as a small player, but to get from a small player to a big player is like a chasm. Uh, And I I think that's what we found. There is a huge chasm in terms of marketing and investment that you need to go from a small... And BrewDog has been the one that's gone closest to, to, to getting that orbital velocity in terms of growth. But growth seems to be coming much harder and their growth seems to be very expensive looking at their very latest figures. Yeah. Well, even with that, jumping that chasm, Matt, and saying BrewDog's the the closest, in some ways they're not, though, because essentially what they've done, they've become a a very large uh, local player, let's say in, in the UK, but then they've replicated and they've traded sort of off that into other markets rather than becoming a truly large player in their home market. It's not like they've really um, supplanted any of the real majors in in the UK Mm. uh, and then grown that out um, globally. They became a very large, very, very large small player and then taken that as an export to all the other other places. So, yes, there there is probably significant volumes of beer, but as far as... um, public perception and awareness and the way public treat the brand and purchase the brand and the brand is positioned it, it really it, it really still is playing in the in the in the same space now back back to that dollar figure uh before that 400 odd um million that wasn't dollars though that was pounds wasn't it so that was pounds yeah in in australian dollars that's you know probably six to eight hundred million that would be uh, over there. But, but, and that's just for the one-fifth share of it. So I, I think it's 1.7, you know, their, their private equity, sorry, their equity crowdfunding valuation, the fund that they raise out for their, um, you know, equity punks is 1.7 billion pounds. 
you know, that, that's what the full valuation, their own internal full valuation is if you want to buy in as an equity punk. Which you could hardly see that being realised um, now. There's certainly not a, um, a, a $2 billion US company. No. And, and, and that's, again, you know, they've bootstrapped using equity crowdfunding to get their most passionate customers to invest in because that also presumably locks them into, you know, using their discounts to create, you know, an army of um, buyers for for, for their product um, and, you know, their most loyal customers. But the way they've also gone about it is if the exit goes badly and those uh, punks get fractions of what they even invested you know um, you're actually going to be burning your best customers which makes the business even less attractive yeah that's true imagine if you put five thousand pounds uh into equity for punks and um it all got sold and moved through and you get back 1500 or 750 um they'll certainly leave a bad taste in the in the mouth of many people of your most loyal people most of them, and particularly, you know, like uh, James uh, Watts uh, is sort of saying that, you know, um, he's still the largest shareholder in the business. Um, and so he has a, you know, real stake in getting the best price for his shares. Of course, when they took the 200 odd uh, million pounds or 217 million pounds, 113 million pounds of that wasn't invested in the business it went to buying out the early investors of which he was one of them so i, I again he made tens of millions of pounds from that in, you know from selling that investment at the time so even if he doesn't make a lot on the rest of the thing he's still done pretty well out of brewdog he's set for life so his um yeah well no doubt he's still hungry he's not as hungry as he may otherwise have been if he hadn't have taken a significant chunk off the table yeah. Good luck to them too, by the way. Like they, they, you know, they, they built something and they, they, they risked a lot, but there's still so much uh, hype and hubris, um, I would say, in, in, in the business. Um, interesting story uh, from Good Beer Hunting. Um, bargain hunting, amid mergers and acquisitions and closures, which we're seeing a lot of, there's a glut of cheap brewing equipment uh, adding uncertainty to the industry. Kate Bonneau, who I think is one of the very uh, interesting, insightful US uh, journalists, um, talking about it, we've started to see, like we're seeing a lot of classified ads on Bruce News. Anyone who's looking at uh, you know cheap secondhand equipment is going to get it, which will also, I would imagine, have knock-on impacts um, for, for manufacturers, if there is a lot of equipment coming on stream, um, it, it's going to start putting pressure on the people who make who have started in the last fifteen years to, to make equipment as well. Yeah, there certainly is more equipment available at the moment than there has been in the last few years. Uh, fifteen twenty years ago, you you did see a bit more secondhand equipment, um, and its value was a lot higher than though. Uh, then there was a big period where you just never saw um, or rarely saw secondhand equipment, but now it's um, there certainly is um, 
more on the market. Uh, I don't think the prices have hit quite the rock bottom that they have in the US. Some of the stuff in that article, the prices for equipment was was pretty in- incredible. Um, you know, wild goose canning lines for $15,000 um, would be, yeah, they'd get snapped up in half a second here at, at, at multiples of that. Um, but definitely there has been, there is more equipment on the, on the market. Um, and I have noticed that um, the uh, equipment manufacturers uh, seem to be more persistent in their advertising, or well, at least the way it comes up to me, and some of their prices appear to be going down uh, as, as well. Uh, so they must be being affected by it. Uh, I'd say probably more so from what's happening in the US than what's than what's happening here um, in in Australia. Um, interestingly, though, I, yeah, like I said, I don't think the 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 the, the price market has, has completely dropped out here, and I have seen some equipment going for um, for figures which would make me go, well, "Why am I going to buy that secondhand? I'll I'll buy that um, brand new." But as things change over the next. 12 or 18 months we'll we'll um we'll see how it's going to shake down here but certainly those those figures in the US for, for some of the secondhand equipment's absolutely in, in, incredible why would you buy new but at the same time what is the downside if there is one of buying secondhand equipment you know it, it, it's it, it's been installed and used and then uninstalled and moved does that have an issue? You know, does that cause any problems for for brewing equipment, or is it very, um, you know, uh, res- uh, resistant to, to to those sorts of things? Depends on the the piece of equipment you're talking about. An FV uh, is a lot different to you know where there's no motors um, or moving parts as such. is a lot different to a to a brew house. Um, one thing with buying used equipment, and this, this is the same as buying a used car. You know, you could get SEP someone else's problem um, and you, you end up purchasing that and there could be a reason why they're, they're selling that equipment, why it hasn't worked for them. Um, if you're buying secondhand fermenters, I'm a naturally very cautious person and things like this and what is the um, – how clean is that is that equipment? Um, technically, a fermenter, you should be able to stay in a steel vessel. You should be able to do a, a fair bit to, to, to clean it up, but I, I do worry wonder about those sorts of things. Um, and then, yeah, mechanical and electrical issues with with other um, bits of kits can be can be issues. You know, yeah, you can just be buying someone else's this problem. But um, as far as moving it and so forth, well, it, it does depend on the on on the equipment, and it's it's like any other piece of equipment. Um, then, if it's if it's looked after in that transport, it all should be fine. One of the really interesting conversations I've had uh, recently is. One of the things that breweries don't often factor in when they're buying equipment is maintenance cost. You know, if you're buying something that's new, um, you know, you get your 12, 18 months trouble-free um, things. But it's just like buying a car. You know, you, you need to service it and you need to maintain it. And that's been one of the um, things I constantly hear is that there is uh, a use-until-break mentality um, in, in, in the craft brewing industry. Is that an issue? Is that a potential issue for brewers buying cheap secondhand gear? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there, there really is a use it till you break it um, thing. There's many, many breweries that don't have preventance maintenance schedules, and some even not so small um, that don't have preventive preventative maintenance schedule. You should be building a schedule out. It's not the hardest thing in the world to do. 
um, where you are um, factoring in when you are going to need specific pieces of maintenance done on your equipment. Some of those things will be things that the manufacturer will tell you that you must um, you must do this at, at intervals X, Y, and Z, and some of them they don't tell you. Um, but it basically, if anything moves, you should um, there is maintenance to be done on that. You know, uh, lubrication at the at the very very least. Even things that don't move, uh, pressure vessels um, such as your fermenters, there is intervals that they have to. There is Australian law about intervals uh, at which those vessels have to be inspected and tested to see if there's been any stresses that have happened over the last X period of time. And you should be doing that because that is the law and that is the safety of your of your workforce um, or yourself, whoever that is, doesn't matter. It's a human life, um, and so you should be getting that that tested. Yeah, you should be um, greasing things. You should be doing manual inspections over and looking for 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 wear and tear. And this is everything that you use. You should have a schedule down for. Now, this also is um, something that's good to do because it will minimise the chance of downtime. Uh, through equipment breakage and failure doesn't eliminate it uh, entirely because shit still happens but it minimizes it it also lets you get a better look at your capacity too often people talk about the capacity of their brewery and they'll just go we've got um x amount of seller space we can turn that seller space over every two weeks three weeks, whatever, and so you've got 26 or 17.5 uh, cycles in a year of that and go, well, that's our capacity. Well, no, it's not because it doesn't take into account your maintenance time um, and you need to know that, okay, on twice a year for one day, I'm going to be down on this bit of equipment while we have the techs in to look at that. Um, so you have to be able to factor that in and that will – that will that will help you then be able to um, overcome some yeah not uh, some un unexpected um, downtime. You also with with things like that, if you're truly wanting your your absolute capacity, you have to fa um, factor in labour movements over that period as well. But that's nothing to do with with maintenance. But yeah, absolutely, a preventative maintenance schedule is um, something that you 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 should have. There you go. And, and we thought there wasn't going to be a lot to talk about this week. <laughs> <laughs> Always stuff to talk about. Thank you for that. Yeah, look, again, I think there's a whole lot that we can pick up there, probably as a Brewery Pro um, article. But uh, just the, the other article that really jumped out at me was something that, and again, I think that this one could engage us talking for a little while. Um, another article from Good Beer Hunting, also by Kate Bernot, um, someone who you should really be following in, in your feeds. Um, choose your fighter. Beer group asks drinkers, legislators to pick sides in beer's battle with spirits. Um, it, it starts, uh, for years, beer has been losing share of mind and dollars to spirits. Now, one organization is trying to rally Americans in this ongoing battle. The Beer Institute, which is the trade group made up of beer companies of all sizes, uh, that includes some of the largest in the country, has launched a website aimed at getting lawmakers and the public to support pro-beer lobbying efforts that are effectively anti-liquor. Um, in, in the US, they're going through a very similar uh, situation to us, probably a little bit further down the track, where the Distilled Spirits Council and some of the other um, drinks makers are lobbying for beers preferential tax treatment um, to be equalized. 
Um, in Australia, wine has probably or arguably the most preferential tax treatment um, with beer getting some benefits and then, you know, spirits um, punitively taxed or even more punitively taxed than um, beer is. Uh, but the, the, the campaign to level the playing field or equalise the playing field uh, is, is much stronger. And so the brewing industry is hitting back um, because, I, 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 honestly, if we think that the brewing industry is under pressure now, if RTDs are taxed at the same as beer, um, it'll decimate the brewing industry um, and particularly the craft industry. Um, Ian, did you have any thoughts around this one? Yeah, um, many. Um, yeah, interesting um, the way they've they, they've gone about that. And you, you're right, Matt. Um, everyone is just looking after their own interests, be that the you know, the wine companies, the beer companies, the, the spirits companies. Um, if we did have a change, um, I can see why spirits want things, would want things um, taxed a little bit differently be very much in their their favor they're the ones that stand to really win on that i don't think i'm not too worried about it because um whilst we need a shake up um of excise in this country country i don't think it's going to happen for a while and i don't think we'll put everything on a a um stand drinks style taxation where one standard drink is taxed the same as another um i i, I just don't see uh, I think there's too many other interests happening for that for that to go, but we essentially did have that Matt until not that long ago. Uh, whenever anyone talks about the alcohol pops tax, uh, that was something mm. that I think was a mistake for the government in marketing because it really wasn't a tax on alcohol pops as such. All they were really doing was um, closing a loophole with um, the way spirits were taxed. So basically, what it was was spirits taxed at a higher rate than um than beer and what they the um uh, uh, the spirits uh, industry successfully argued at the time was that uh when you mix rum with cola it's no longer rum it's now a different drink and so it should be taxed as a different drink and so there was the other excisable beverage um below 10 percent and which case it was basically treated as as beer and um, which made it a really lucrative way for um, spirits companies to market their product was to to blend it in with something else, and you could sell it something at a sweet specifically as something well. Something sweet that, that, so, that appealed yeah, to a much younger drinker. That's right. And then that same amount of rum was taxed at a lower rate than if it was in a seven fifty ml bottle. So basically, the government just got rid of that loophole. And if it was rum, or not just to pick on rum, but whiskey or, or vodka or whatever. Uh, that base drink that created that alcohol, that was how it was taxed. So, uh, however, the government allowed themselves to be in the position where people thought they were adding in an additional tax to alcohol pops, and it wasn't. It was really just closing a loophole. Loophole. But my understanding was that that actually, so the vodka cruises that, you know, suddenly went up in price, because you could make a neutral 5% alcohol that you then flavoured the same way, um, using brewing, um, they started making them alternatives to get around that That's closure right. they, of the loophole, it's, which it's, meant that they had to change the definition of beer 
to be taxable. It had to have a certain level of bitterness, um, no post-sweetening, and a, a range of other things, um, which is how complicated tax is. If you pull one lever, hole drops in the floor on the other side of the room that you're not expecting. Yeah, that's that's right. As soon as that happened, the entire industry knew that that's what they were going to do, um, that that someone would start manufacturing a, 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 a an RTD-type beverage as a beer, um, and it happened immediately. Um, and so, but the, the government was straight on to that again, and yes, that's exactly right. That's when we had the um, change for the definition of, of beer in Australia, and that's where we got the, the four BUs and um, a, a no greater than 4% um, a, a mono and disaccharides um, in, in beer or no artificial sweeteners, which um, for clarification too, some people then think artificial sweeteners is you using some artificial ingredient. No, it's any time that you artificially sweeten, you can artificially sweeten with a natural sweetener um, as well, but anything that's... it's So lactose, for example? Uh, yeah, well, lactose is, well, lactose is pretty interesting. Um, lactose is really not a sweetener as such, and lactose actually is... A disaccharide, I believe it's um, one that I, I, I think that I think I, we mentioned this before. It's yeah, we're again onto the the shaky ground. I'll, with, I'll give you with, some homework. So <laughs> um, um, but yeah, basically, if you're doing something to purposefully make it sweeter than truly sweeter, that's against the spirit of the um, of of the the legislation. And, and that's where it becomes really interesting and complicated for me because. I find it very hard to justify to myself why fat little lamb, you know, a two litre thing of fat little, little lamb that is targeted at binge drinking 18 year olds, and I don't think there's any way you can deny that, you know, um, is taxed um, as a you know, spirit at the same rate that, you know, a $150 bottle of Japanese single malt whiskey is. Well, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. So oh, it's, isn't it? Okay. No, so the reason why it's so cheap, um, funnily enough, I was um, just, well, not talking about that product. But so when we come to things like um, ginger beer, uh, if I was to make a true ginger beer from, um, from scratch, like how I did as a kid uh, with my dad, um, but make an alcoholic version of that, and it was around four or five percent alcohol. Um, I would be charged at the same rate; it would fall under the same rate um, as spirits, and I would be charged through the nose from that. Uh, however, if I was to make that same ginger beer at eight percent alcohol, I could then pass it off as a herb and vegetable wine, and I could get it done under wet tax. So uh, I could uh, pay no excise and then minimal wet on that and then get the half a million dollars um, uh, wet claim back, um, whereas that 4% alcohol uh, version of the exact same thing, I would be paying the same excise, the 80-odd dollars um, per litre of alcohol as as spirits are. Uh, and this was just re-brought to me. I, we visited uh, Willie Smith's when, um, when I was down in Tasmania and I was talking with Ben from down there and we are going through um, uh, with some friends there going through the, the way that the taxation system works for breweries and the way it works for cideries um, and definitions of cider. So cider you can make from anything, the, the pom family, so pears, um, apples, and then apparently pomegranates too, which I was unaware of. Um, 
and that by Australian law is considered cider. However, if I added a just a little bit of ginger to my cider, uh, it would no longer be considered cider. If I added a little bit of strawberry to my cider, it would no longer be considered cider and it would be um, taxed as other excisable beverage the same way that spirits are. However, if I made it at over 8%, I could say it was a uh, a fruit, a uh, herb and vegetable wine, and um, once again, it'd be, it would be allowable, um, which is just an absolutely ridiculous scenario. <laughs> I, okay. I, I knew we were going to get a bit of and I haven't even talked about um, the idea of selling beer, uh, you know, of promoting beer and... Uh, you know, creating a better brand image for beer. So we might have to uh, park that for, for another opportunity. Um, now, I'm, I'm guessing that you visited a few breweries when you are in Tassie. So, I uh, certainly did, yeah. We need to let everyone know who the Brewery of the Week is brought to them by, and that is Bluestone Yeast. Our very good friends at Bluestone Yeast who can supply pitches of yeast from one litre to 100 litres at greater than two billion cells per milliliter. Whether you, whether you are after a one-off pitch or you're looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or even better, call our good friend Derek on 03-8518-3172 to talk all things yeast. Ian, Brewery of the Week. So my Brewery of the Week this week comes from Duquesne Brewing in Launceston. So visited them on my very last day, the day we actually flew out. Sam Reed, who we had on the podcast, well, it was probably a good six months ago now. Um, Sam was on, on on the podcast talking all things Duquesne. Yeah, the fantastic venue, Matt. Loved it there. Uh, cold, Launceston day. We're getting ready to to leave the state. I was about to say the country. Did feel like I was in another country. Um, and... Um, yeah, when it went in there, uh, fantastic service. Um, uh, staff were, were absolutely awesome. Um, beautiful, beautiful layout there. It was in an old, um, uh, sporting wear store. And, you know, there was still uh, the, some of the signs on the, on the wall outside and inside to do with that. And, uh, 1970s style, uh, tent canvas around the bar and up on some of the walls, which was, which was pretty cool. Um, also a very nice and neat and clean brewery, which appeals to me. And um, fantastic pizza and, and two or three lovely beers later and we were out of there and, yeah, loved it and highly, highly recommend if you're, if you're in Launceston, um, uh, visit Duquesne and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'd love it. Quite a spacious venue and, um, yeah, reasonable number of people considering it was a uh, very cold Wednesday when we were in there. Nice, nice. It's certainly on my list. I haven't been to northern uh, Tassie for a while, but I'm hoping to get down there. So uh, I'm glad you did. Um, well, that wraps up another week of news. We do thank our good friends at Bluestone Yeast and also Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging for making this show possible. Also, our uh, very long-term and much-loved uh, editor, Joe Helder. Um, thank you, Joe. Uh, Thank you, Ian, for another for all of your insights for another week. Particularly getting off your sick bed to join us uh, would have been I would have been having a, a lonely old chat by myself otherwise. Not a problem. Enjoying it. Looking forward to uh, getting you back next week. And uh, don't forget, we will be back. Uh, this will go out Friday, so we're back next Tuesday with uh, and another great podcast, a beer as a conversation with Christopher Shepard, who is the senior editor at Beer Marketing Insights in the United States. And we have a very interesting talk 
about what's going on in the States, what we can learn in Australia and what we shouldn't apply to Australia because of the different um, you know, excise and uh, conditions. But then also we have a very interesting chat about the uh, Bud Light um, saga and, and everything's going on there. And Chris gives his uh, perspective on that, which is uh, very much uh, worth listening to. So uh, you can listen to that in this feed next Tuesday. Otherwise, have a great week and uh, enjoy your beers.